Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for another episode. Today, we decided that we want to talk about criminal justice. It's a topic that we've discussed several times before. We want to revisit it. And and the reason why is because although we've addressed a couple of, of pivotal areas, we've talked about our idea of restorative justice. We've talked about a lot of self-defense stuff related to Kyle Rittenhouse. We've talked about you know, police authority, you know, and police abuse, you know, was, our first episode was was about that, you know, year and a half ago or so. Because it's been it's been a hot button issue, the, you know, the past two years, in particular in regards to to police authority and Black Lives Matter. And that's gotten a lot of attention and focus talking about, you know, the 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 dangers that the police have not even the dangers, but the the threat that the police have posed to our society. You know, it's interesting, Dan, you mentioned a, a, a study that was done conducting, a study that was done, I can't talk today. A study that was <laughs> That's conducted. That's okay, it's not important. It's not like we're here to talk. No, not at all. A study that was <laughs> conducted to, to find out what people believed. And, and there, was, there was a sizable group of people who who in that study stated that they thought the number of unarmed black men who had been killed by the police was around 10,000 in the past year. And and that number may not be exact, but the point is, is that they were way, way over the mark on something that is, in general, a very rare event. Yeah, the actual number was like 13. Mm-hmm. I do, and I don't remember if that was this last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. probably 2019 yeah. numbers or and 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 not to mitigate those deaths at all, not to mitigate the the goal of some of these movements, you know, because there there is something to be done in terms of addressing police brutality. There is something to be done in addressing many of these broken systems. But the one that we feel really needs to be looked at is criminal justice, and and the reason for that is because yes, thirteen unarmed black men, you know, were were shot in twenty nineteen or whatever the year is. That's bad. But what's much worse, you know, for those who are concerned about the demographic differences in terms of criminal justice, what's much worse is the fact that at some point in their lifetime, one out of three black men will be incarcerated in some form versus, you know, one in nine men in general or one in 17 white men. You know, those are the numbers that I personally am much more concerned about. Right. And one of the interesting things about these statistics, we've gone through this kind of a breakdown before where you look at these numbers and you try and figure out the causality, right? Um, there, the fact that there is a disparity is the norm mm-hmm. in statistics, right? The fact that there are different outcomes is the norm. But when you start to compare the number of people we put in prison to other nations, um, Again, a disparity should be the norm, but we put <laughs> per capita, we have 707 people as opposed to Russia that has 470, for Thailand that has 413, yeah, for every 100,000, sorry. Russia has 470, Thailand 413. They are our closest competitors. We're number one on this list. Of the, the 50 most populous nations, we're number one for number of people in prison per 100,000. It's uh, it's ridiculously high. We are imprisoning an obscene amount of people, and and the question is why? Right? Mm-hmm. Why why mm-hmm. is that happening? How do you end up with where one third of black men will be incarcerated at some point? That includes jail and prison, yeah. but but obviously the prison numbers for black men is also much higher than the norm. Well, and it's not yeah, and it's not just and 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 my concern here is is primarily not the disparity. If mm-hmm. if one out of every three thousand black men, you know, were going to spend time in prison in their lifetime versus one in six thousand white men, I'd be much less concerned. What I'm concerned about is that one in three number. The fact that if you have a group of of you know, I mean if you have if you're if you're, you know, black and you have two brothers and, and you're a boy growing up, statistically speaking, one of you is going to spend time in jail. And obviously that's not how statistics work, but that <laughs> but, but that knowledge no, for right. me yeah, growing yeah. up would make me very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not the relative difference. It's the absolute number. One in three is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And 
and and there there are more numbers that are really disturbing. You know, 2.3 million people are are currently incarcerated. That's between local jails, state state prisons, federal prisons, so many different areas. What's crazy is that about 470,000 of those 2.3 million have not yet been convicted of a crime. So about 1 in 5 of the people currently incarcerated in the United States, 1 in 5 of those is currently not proven guilty and is therefore under the law supposed to be innocent. You know, I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk, we talked about drug laws before and about how a lot of these people are in prison when they shouldn't be. Well, regardless of how you feel about drug laws, if you agree that innocent until proven guilty, then you believe that one out of five people currently incarcerated is at least technically innocent. And that's crazy. Right, right. It's, it's odd. Um, you compare the number of people we have uh, incarcerated who have not been proved, that 470,000 number, people who we're not sure if they're guilty or not. They haven't gone through the processes. Um, and you say, <laughs> and you compare them to the numbers of other countries. So for every seven people we have in prison, France has one, roughly. It's like 707 to 101. Um we have more people in prison who have not been convicted, more people in jail who have not been convicted than France has in prison altogether, mm-hmm. right? Relative to the population. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's true of every, I want to say every, I didn't look super close, every European country. We have a higher number of the population in prison on suspected crimes, right? Conviction may or may not happen than they have altogether. And that's taking into account population. Yeah, it looks per 100, looking at the people. list, I don't think that's true of Poland. But I Poland but isn't. I but I think of every other country, you know, Spain, yeah. the UK, Australia uh, Australia's not a European country, but I think of it as UK part two. <laughs> um, it is. It is European. <laughs> Let's be clear. Italy, it's France, certainly not Germany. Asian, which a lot is the of, other option. A lot of these countries, it's far lower. If you look at um like Germany, for example, has a super low rate, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Japan, another Western country, has an incredibly low rate compared to the United States. They have 50 for every 100,000 compared to our to our 700, which basically means that for every three people that are currently incarcerated in the United States without being convicted of a crime, Japan has one person incarcerated, period. Period, who probably has been convicted. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's just yeah. nuts. Yeah, Italy, France, South Korea, Philippines, Canada. Most of the countries that we associate with, that we, you know, we compare ourselves to, are between 77 and about 130 um, on this list, uh, give or take some. Um, and we're up at 700 and, what was it, 707. Um, we're, we're many, many times the number of most other countries. Now, it's possible that that's because we, because they should be there, right? That, that is possible. Yeah, and that, and that the, is, the number doesn't prove something. And, and that is an argument that's occasionally made. But what's interesting, Dan, is that our incarceration rates have jumped in the last few decades, but our, our rates of violence have actually gone way down. You know, we're, we have um, violent crime is about half the rates that it was you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I lost the page that has those exact numbers. So I can't tell you exactly what they were. Oh, here it is. I found it. Yeah. So if you look back in, at, you know, uh, 1990 versus 2020, it's about half the violent crime rate per 100,000 of the population today than it was 30 years ago. And of course, a lot of people argue, well, okay, well, that's because we got strict on crime back in the 80s and 90s and stopped people from committing crimes. That the reason crime rate has gone down is because there are 2 million people in prison. The reality is, is they've actually done studies trying to find that link, and it's just not there. That that doesn't work that way. That if that if it worked that way, the changes would have been a little bit different. And there's and there's no question that like uh, by that sometimes the problem is that they're not enforcing laws right that can be the reason that crime is a problem right mm-hmm. um, and that can and by enforcing the laws you can often decrease crime 
there, this is, it's not to say that there's no link between the two. It's that looking at these overall numbers and what's caused the decrease in crime, what's, and, and why there's a decrease in crime on one hand and an increase of people in prison on the other hand is, uh, is not a causative here. They're, they're going at different, yeah, uh, yeah, like, what's the word? Different rates. Like, let different me give times. you an example, you know, so, so 1990 when the, the crime rate was way higher, but it starts to drop off back in the nineties, mm-hmm. right? Well, in 1992, you still only had 70,000 people serving life sentences. So not, not very many versus it was only in the two thousands where that number really started to jump. After the crime rates had already gone down, we started having more people serve life sentences. You know what I mean? So it's the cause and effect is in many ways reversed. That after the crime rate started going down, we started throwing more people into prison, not the other way mm-hmm. around. Interesting. Yeah, there's a trend begins before the before what the claimed cause. Yeah, so even though they look like they're two matching two matching graphs, they're they're really not. This, this happened a lot of, it was very difficult during COVID to identify when uh, people would argue that it was the lockdowns causing uh, the decrease um, when a closer look revealed that actually it began before the lockdowns would have actually had mm-hmm, the impact. That it starts dropping off and out. then they mm-hmm. lock down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That it hits a certain peak and then in the fear they lock down and then the, yeah, it ends up looking causative when it in fact isn't. Yeah, it's interesting trying to sift through the data. The point of all this is to say that 2.3 million people is really, really, really high relative to our population. It's really high. Um, and the idea that there's police abuse and that some people are being put away for crimes they didn't commit, obviously there's, there's that question, right? How many of the people being convicted of crimes are actually innocent mm-hmm, of crimes? Mm-hmm. Uh, setting that aside, um, there are t- far too many people in prison unless they are actually dangerous. We, we want we want to look at is how do you go through and, and look at crimes, look at uh, the procedures and things and try and correct some of this, try and see, you know, again, to some degree, we're assuming there's a problem because of the relative numbers. I, I look at, uh, we were talking about it before where we grew up and uh, <laughs> the relative crime rates. Let's just say that, that, uh, it varies immensely, right? Some places you're going to see crime all the time mm-hmm. and people you know are probably involved in crimes. Um, other places, it's extremely rare, right? It varies dramatically. Uh, infamously, the big cities are the crime hubs and, uh, and there's reasons for that. There's more money to be made by doing certain things that are often the, the where, the points at which all of the, um, all of the the crime happens around things like gangs, right? You don't get gangs in a in a small town rural area, generally speaking. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. It just wouldn't be profitable, right? They don't they don't have the the uh, the uh, areas to organize around a drug distribution, for example, right? A gang a gang has to be making money. They're they're organized around some kind of economic benefit or on a black market, and they they then use that to. You know, they're fighting for territory, the violence, all these things are centered around some kind of money-making mechanism um, in which they they use that to draw everybody in and control everything. Um, that just isn't going to happen in a rural area for the same reason big businesses aren't moving to rural mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's something that we've brought up before about how so many of, of the violent crimes that are committed – are a byproduct of the fact that that the drug markets are illegal and that if you change drug laws, you would erase a whole chunk of incentives to even commit these crimes. Yes. That so many yes. people are committing crimes because their livelihoods are attached to their criminal their criminal lives in a very concrete way. Not like, oh, I'm gonna steal this TV because I want it, but oh, I work, you know, my job is to work for, you know, drug distribution, which is illegal. And there are a huge number of people in the United States who are employed in that profession. I call it a profession. That's obviously a strange word choice, but that's what it is. You've got a, you've got a whole career <laughs> path set up that's at least decently lucrative, that's completely illegal, is associated with violent crime on top of the already you know drug-related crimes that gets people killed, that gets people arrested, that gets people serving these ridiculously long sentences. 
that could all be circumvented if you legalized drugs and regulated them in a different way. Yes. But but we don't uh, want to focus too much on that because we've talked about that before. Yes. We, to give you a few numbers, so d- drugs, uh, drugs, we looked at it, it makes up something like, what, 430,000 is the number we came to, 450,000, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in there. there. In the 400s. Um, this year, uh, 2021 and 2022 are going to be worse. Uh, crimes went up for the first time in a long time in a, in a variety of ways under COVID mm-hmm. and the lockdowns and things. Um, <clears throat> so this is from 20, we're looking at 2020 and before data. But so those numbers include a wide variety of people. Um, some of it's drug possession. Most of it's not drug possession. People, people, it's relatively uncommon. Um, it's still very common, but it's relative to other drug charges. Drug possession is a small portion. Um, but then you look at other things. So, so it, it makes about 450,000, say 430,000 of the 2.3 million. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a fifth. That's equal. That's just slightly smaller than the group that's not convicted. Mm-hmm. And as Brad was indicating, so many other crimes happen in relation yeah, because to drugs. Because of those drugs. Right. Right. It's exchanges on a black market. If you're not familiar with this idea and why, why it is, it's, it's not. And again, say this, this point that we make in greater detail there. It's not because the drugs make them make poor choices. It's not directly the effect of the drugs on their minds. Mm -hmm. It's not that we have a bunch of crazy people who are crazy because of the drugs doing these things. It's primarily the effect of a black market, uh, of black market exchanges. And the risks and dangers there. And yes, the drugs then obviously aren't helping, right? The fact that they're, they may be taking their own products, mm-hmm, right? And, mm-hmm. and the other people in there, there are crimes of desperation of people on hard drugs who are like, who are violent. Yeah, but that's a very small of percentage of, of the crimes yes. we're talking about. Yeah, it is the illegal nature of the market and the risks associated with exchanging goods illegally that leads so much to violence. They don't have a, they don't have a, a way to, uh, to deal with disputes. Yeah, there's there's no recourse violence. system mm-hmm. set in place. Right, the the ability to trust and make exchanges when there's when uh when they could backstab you and there's no no real recourse. Um all of these things are uh all of these things play a role in making it so that around the 450,000 drug convictions there are an additional amount of violent and property convictions. And the, the chart is that I'm looking at has drug convictions, properties, property, violence, etc. It divides them up by categories, and you're only listed under each of these categories once. So if you're listed under a violent crime, you're not going to be listed under a drug crime. Right? They're, they're taking the most severe crime, and they're listing that as your, as your primary thing. But so much of the violence is driven, is related to the drugs because of financial incentives and the black market issues. So anyway, but so, they, we don't we don't actually know how many people mm-hmm. are caught up in the drug problem, but legalizing them could affect as many as you know a million of the two point three million. It could be a ridiculous amount of them that are in something related. But before we get too far down the rabbit hole, Dan, I want to I want to help illustrate or at least clearly define what I think the issue is because. A lot of people see this problem. A lot of people talk about the 2.3 million people incarcerated. A lot of people talk about how many black men are in prison right now and how it's a serious concern. A lot of people talk about these drug laws and all these people who are getting arrested and it's a serious problem. Um, mm-hmm. But then when it comes to solutions, it gets a bit more complicated. You know, you always have the, you know, an obvious solution is you can arrest more white men. You know what I mean? And there you can balance yeah. things out, or you can, you can go straight social justice, or release more black, yeah, or men. release more yeah. more black men indiscriminately, mm-hmm. or you can. Um, I mean, you look at you know California where they're trying to do things like delegalize. I mean, de they're trying to legalize you know petty theft in order to keep people out of prison because they haven't. Because there's no there's no principled understanding of what's going on. They're just trying to fix the outcomes. You know what I mean? They see the number two point three million, and they're like, "We have to change yes. this number," yeah. which means we need less people in prison. So let's stop arresting people, stop charging people, and let people out of prison. And that's mm-hmm. 
And a lot of conservatives are freaking out about that with good reason, because <laughs> you're just as likely to let out people who shouldn't be let out as you are people who should be let out. Yeah. That unless you believe that no one should ever serve prison time, you do believe there is a just reason for prison. You know, there are a lot of people who are behind bars right now for murder. And letting those people out, I think most of us can agree, is not a good idea. <laughs> and so what that yeah. means is that we can't just say the system is broken. We need to have concrete ideas of how to fix it. And the best way to have concrete ideas that are actually going to be effective and that are actually going to be just, because this is a criminal justice system we're talking about here, is to have them be based on some kind of principle, some kind of universal rule that we can learn to apply effectively. And so that's what I want to first start talking about is what are the principles that we should be looking at so that we don't do what California is doing, but we can also effectively make a change. Now that's, a, that's a great point. Um, and you're right. In the, in the discussion of numbers, it often does become like, well, if the numbers are the problem, then just we can easily the change the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right that, that fundamentally what you want is, is the, pro the only way that 2.3 million people in prison is a, in incarcerated is a problem is if they don't deserve to be yeah. there right if, if it's unjust mm -hmm. um and i think in many cases you of course in a in a system as big as the u.s there will always be some people in there mm -hmm. who don't belong you know some people who it's unjust and it's always worth the effort to try and uh try and change it to be more just right that's a that's a given um but yes if we if we lose track of of how it connects to justice and not social justice, mm -hmm. not just not just group numbers, no, but individual justice, actual people who've yes, uh, community. You don't want to release people who are threats any more than you want to uh, keep people in who are innocent. Mm -hmm. That that's that's the goal. So you're right; it has to be from the ground up, and and the and the drug discussion should have started could have started from that point as we we do when we talk about it in more detail and we, we won't talk about it too much more in this but the principle under the drug issue is that they're not harming someone else and and we'll get into the principles and, and talk about like you said mm -hmm. develop principles of how do you find how do you what laws should be there and upon what principles do we establish a a uh a mutually agreeable system of justice. Mm -hmm. We'll say that. Obviously, there's going to be disagreements in the in various areas, but in general, get a get something we can agree upon as a system that doesn't put a lot of people in there who don't need to be there and gets keeps as many innocent people out of there as possible. Mm -hmm. So, so when it comes to principles of justice, there there are some that people readily agree on. You know, one that I already mentioned is the idea of innocent until proven guilty. In the United States, that's a principle that's universally accepted. The idea that, well, I mean, that's that's part of where the the whole police brutality thing comes from, because historically, and and in in many countries even to this day police officers have the ability to punish you before ascertaining your guilt. You know what I mean? And that's what police, <laughs> police brutality in many ways is, is, is you're being punished before it's proven that you committed the crime. If you weren't innocent until proven guilty, there would be no problem with that. You know what I mean? You're guilty because the police think yeah. you're guilty and we move on from there. Yeah, this is in some ways the problem with torture, right? Mm -hmm. in, in the in the circumstances of where you're trying to get a confession. Yeah, exactly. And you torture them to get your confession. And the innocent until proven guilty principle would stop that. Would stop that. And it makes perfect sense from a from a perspective of if I'm a police officer and you're you're a potential criminal brat. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that you are not committing an injustice. Upon what grounds would I say that's important? That it's important for you not to be unjust, but it's okay if I'm unjust. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it, make sense. Just basic logic. I really think it's just a logical application of the idea that if justice matters, then the enforcers ought to be just. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not a it's not complicated, and it's why I think it's got universal agreement. Yeah, and and, and another way of looking at it is that if if those who aren't guilty start getting punished by the government in any form, then at that point, the government itself becomes a guilty party. 
You know what I mean? That's what police brutality is, is where, you know, the police themselves are the ones committing the crimes, which, yes. which as we've seen is sometimes does, does happen and does need to be it addressed. Does. And, and we're glad that it is being addressed. Yeah. You could say the whole entire, the, the, the entire basis of the movement towards what we would describe today as broadly as modern democracies is upon the basis that uh, that governments um, that governments inherently need to be doing need to be protecting the citizens yeah. or helping the citizens mm-hmm. in some way. The government is for the people, yeah, yeah. right? That's what when people say government is for the people. That's what they mean. I mean, it's you can't discard the people for the sake of the government mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, without committing some kind of abuse that eliminates the entire point of it. And so then, and so then, when you're looking at the system, you use this principle to to have further further principles and also and principles and then ideas built on those principles um for example one that we're all familiar with is the the right to a speedy trial that's built on the innocent until proven guilty because if you weren't innocent until proven guilty it doesn't matter when you're tried you know what i mean if you're guilty until proven guilty then we'll just try you whenever um then yes you can we'll just hold you until you prove your innocence yeah exactly exactly and which is how the appeals process works, because once you're proven guilty, you know, we can hold you as the long assumption as you're guilty. Assumption yes. you're guilty. And if you can prove you're not, then you can get out of prison. But until you do, then the trial can take as long as we need it to. Unfortunately, while this is a principle everyone agrees with, it's not being well executed. You know, as the fact that one out of five people currently incarcerated has not yet been tried is a serious problem. The fact that uh, that Arthur Coffey the Fourth, who we talked about in relation to Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, a few few months ago, was not tried until several years after the incident occurred. Uh, Arthur Coffey Four was was the the man who. The SWAT team broke into his house. You know, the flashbang went off. He thought he was being shot at. He fired out the window. They fired in, um, killing it, killing his girlfriend. And then um, he ends up getting charged with attempted murder on them as well as getting charged for for the death of his girlfriend. And he ends up winning his self-defense argument on all of the of the murder charges, which is fantastic. But what's so rough about it is how long it took to get to that trial several years is far too long and even if you're able to get bail which not everyone is able to get it's still going to impact your life you cannot resume a a normal life knowing that you're going to be on trial for murder in six months anyone who argues that it's a normal life leading up to a murder trial is just flat out wrong (laughs) <laughs> yeah your your life is on hold yeah your life is on hold more than that it's it's ruined yeah i mean and in, in many ways it really is ruined you know if if you're you're applying for a job and you're like no i'm not a convicted murderer yes i am currently going to be on i'm i've what's what's the term <laughs> i've been charged with murder you know but they haven't found me guilty yet they're like oh well that's fine <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's there's no world in which you get hired there, no matter how useful you seem to be, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe if it's your friend or something, you know, someone who knows you're innocent. But yeah, and so and so so some kind of bail modification might seem like an effective solution to this problem, but it's really not. The only effective solution is something we discussed earlier is to actually have a speedy trial. And so when you're looking at the laws that are currently in place and the laws that are being proposed to change, the best way to do it is to go back to the principles. Okay, well, why is a speedy trial important? It's not because we just believe in efficiency of government. No, it's because you're innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, because it's unjust to hold someone who isn't guilty of a crime, and we are assuming innocence until you can prove otherwise. And and why are we assuming that? As we For the reasons that we articulated. Right? This is... These things, uh, a speedy trial is a practical application of innocent till proven guilty. It's it's the embodiment of that principle mm-hmm. in law, and uh, and it's something that we've let slip at our own peril, um, and it's it's a serious problem. Um, there are other areas where innocent till proven guilty doesn't quite apply. There's a variety of 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 niche uh, 
crimes and things that we've mentioned before, parental rights are a good example of them, where, uh, where you're guilty until proven innocent. And, and there's a variety of ways in which the, the courts operate differently in particular jurisdictions mm-hmm. that are problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but if you have this one principle, right, innocent until proven guilty, what does that mean? Why? How would that, what does that look like in application? There, there used to be, and there still, there still are some really gray areas for this. What, what police are allowed to do to try and get confessions mm-hmm. um, is, is one of those areas. Yeah, where, where it really, really should be looked at. Because I think in many yes. ways, what police can do to get a confession is really a violation of this principle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever you think of what they can currently do. You don't have to go back very far at all to see what they used to do. <laughs> there were, it was legitimate abuse. Mm-hmm. Like it was, um, it wasn't, this, this has been something that's actually been steadily reforming. It has, it has not been consistent. The mm-hmm. constitutional law cases on this are really interesting in, in, uh, how to apply this particular principle, um, in relation to the police interacting with suspects. Um, what can you do and what can't you do before you, have proven that they're guilty is, and obviously it's hugely important. You don't you don't want them to be compelling people into confessions. You don't want them. You don't want people to be taking plea deed deed plea deals for crimes they didn't commit because, because they're, they're worried afraid of a, of a worse yes, sentence. Of a worse sentence. Um, it's uh, and that is something which happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious. We should pull up the numbers on that at some point. That'd be interesting. Absolutely. That's one principle. So, so that's a principle that everyone can agree on. Now we're going to go into some of the principles that we've generated. Generated is a funny word that that we've discussed and come up with ideas that principles that we think would be effective and are very logical in laying out a criminal justice system. So the next one we want to talk about is that there must be some form of disputed harm between two or more people. So you know when there's a murder case there's it's pretty straightforward you know that there's harm committed against one or more people between two yeah. or more people you know the there's the the murderer there's their victim and potentially the other people who are harmed by that victim's death right if if i go to my fridge and i eat a lot of fudge you could argue that i have just harmed myself if i took brad and i tied him to a wall and fed him a bunch of fudge Obviously, I've committed a crime. Yeah, and one is worthy <laughs> but, of a court case, and one is right, not. Right, right. In in and in part, this is this is intuitive if you understand the basis for what a court is, and it's a place to solve disputes. Mm-hmm. And if if I go and I eat a bunch of fudge, there's no dispute because there's only one party. Mm-hmm. You simply can't have a dispute mm-hmm. between <laughs> between the one crazy guy, I guess, and the voices in his head. That's not that's not something that a court is fit to. Uh, to dispute, you know, to solve the dispute of. Um, no, and, 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 so and, that's, it, and that's where a lot of regulations come into play in terms uh-huh. of creating laws that result in people getting arrested and people, you know, you know, either getting harmed through, through taxes and fees or in worst case scenarios, actually, you know, serving prison time for doing something that had no disputed harm between two or more people. You know, a, a great example of this is you go back to the to the drug example. You know, the simplest version of this is that I could grow marijuana in my backyard, which is a plant. I can then harvest that marijuana and then sell it to Dan, my next door neighbor, because he wants it for whatever reason. And then I get arrested. I get tried in court and then I serve prison time. And you say, okay, well, clearly he needs to be arrested because of the harm that he's causing. Well, where's the disputed harm? You know, Dan, Dan's got arthritis and he's using my marijuana to help him with his arthritis. And I'm serving prison time because I wanted to help him with his arthritis. And, right. and the, you know, and, and that's where you get into the, to the real gray areas where it becomes clear that it's a problem. Yeah, you have a mediating principle here um, about what constitutes a dispute and what doesn't. And, and you can see it when it helps when both parties are still alive. One of them will come dispute it, right? That's pretty, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a pretty straightforward base, you know, starting point. Um, but you could also say uh, that the, there's an element here that's critical, which is consent. Mm-hmm. Why would someone dispute it? Well, most times because it's something they didn't consent to. 
right? Something happened either contrary to what they consented to or that they didn't consent to. And so consent is tied up here in this idea of, of, uh, of what is, what is a legitimate dispute that must be handled by a third party, which is essentially what a court is. Um, and what, what doesn't need to be handled by a third party, you know, mm-hmm. what isn't a legitimate dispute and what simply requires, uh, I guess the court's hand in a different way, which is like contract enforcement and things like that. Well, and what's interesting about that that drug example, Dan, is that the drug example really isn't different from you eating fudge and getting arrested mm-hmm. for it. Because when you tell that story about me selling you marijuana, the response is, well, people have a right to step in because I'm harming you. You know what I mean? That, that through my, my drug sale to mm-hmm. you, I'm harming you. But in reality... Because of your consent, you're harming yourself, assuming that what you're buying is harming you. And I'm not I'm not saying that yes. my story of you buying marijuana to help with arthritis, I'm not even sure if it does, but for you know, for pain management, I I think it would help yes. with arthritis, but it's not the point. I don't want to get too caught up in the details here. <laughs> you're not making a medical claim not, here in addition I, to a, I just realized that I'm over legal here principles. espousing <laughs> the virtues of of marijuana for arthritis, and that was never <laughs> what I wanted to do or even cared about. <laughs> but hopefully, we can, hopefully we can get a sponsor going soon what you're really saying here brad is take more marijuana that's, right that's the message if we that's want to get not the, the message you're not you know that i'm that you're not getting from me that i'm doing it wrong <laughs> anyways <laughs> now you uh you bring up a good point though in terms of and, and we've discussed this in terms of economics that the the process by which we we determine harm what harms us and what helps us is not straightforward. It's it's a it, it makes sense and it can be explained, right? You can you can rationally conceive of, of large portions of it. So we'll say we'll say Brad is selling uh, brownies with marijuana in them, and I'm taking them uh, medicinally. Now there's going to be there's going to be side effects, or we could we could say it's something much more dangerous, right, than marijuana, some kind of um, uh, high level, maybe it's morphine, right, yeah, or, or something it's... like that. It's going to have a significant impact on me. Um, in my mind, I'm assessing, assuming I'm consenting, right? Mm-hmm. I have made some kind of assessment about the pros and cons of this, that there's going to be, that I could decide a variety of things, and of the things I could decide that I've thought about and that are before me, um, I'm, I've put this one as the one I'm going to do mm-hmm. based on the fact that I think it's going to bring me the greatest uh, satisfaction or the ben- greatest benefit, right, relative to other things, which is to say I have decided it's not harm, mm-hmm. right? And the and even even you can or even that it's go harm this, that you're okay with that it's harm. The harm the level of harm is worth the benefit. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's a trade off. There are trade offs here. Um, just like with, I mean, you could say that anything that takes time harms you in some sense because you're you're using a scarce resource, mm-hmm. right? And that that's irreplaceable. Yeah, or anything that has risk, like mountain biking, anything that has risk is yes. a form of mm-hmm. of potential self harm. Right. Consent is the way that we mediate the, this thinking that is entirely subjective, that doesn't have a necessarily absolute truth to it, but has subjective truths. For me, this may be worth it, right? And only I could say that. No one else could say that. And, and the reason why, Dan, is, is really rather simple. It's because what we're talking about is not just any form of intervention, but intervention by force. When, yes. when we say that I'm selling Dan marijuana, we're not saying that no one should do anything. You know, or yes. I'm selling him something yeah. more severe. We're not saying that no one should do anything and that what's happening is, is perfectly right. We're saying that yes. what's happening here doesn't warrant forceful intervention. It may warrant many things, you know. It may it may warrant a concerned neighbor stopping by and having a conversation, you know. It it may warrant Dan's family members stepping in with with slightly more aggressive persuasion of various forms. <laughs> it may involve social shaming. It may involve, you know, unwillingness to participate on a professional or relationship level. You know what I mean? Right, there can be right. businesses that say, "Yeah, if you're going to be doing this, you can't." work here or if there are businesses that say yeah you can't rent here if you're going to be doing that etc etc down the line there are many ways that we are involved in each other's lives and we're not saying to cut those those avenues of influence off we're just saying that in order 
for the criminal justice system to be based on principles of justice and in order for them to step in through use of force, there has to be disputed harm. Yes. Thank you. And that was it. extremely well put. Yeah. Yeah. That there's so much of your life that you should be doing that the government shouldn't step in and make you do, right? This should be intuitive. Surely you can think of – everyone should be able to think of some things in their life that they're like, I should do that. A police officer should not stand over my shoulder with a gun to make sure I do it, right? There's, there's, there's a – we separate these uh -huh. things. We distinguish these things because there are certain things that should – where where violence is justified, where force is justified, and there are certain things where they're not. And we, we use the word justice in this podcast to distinguish those yeah, things. Yeah, and that's something that Thing most people agree with, you know, when it comes to, to cigarettes. Everyone understands that cigarettes are harmful. Like, it's not, it's not up for debate. It's not ambiguous. You know, if you use tobacco, it's going to cause you bodily harm. <laughs> and yet most people think that it's okay. For, well, it's that most people think that it's not the government's role to intervene in that process. Yes. Yes. Um, there, there's interesting arguments about that from the side where you go, well, these people are going to then use our, excuse me, use our healthcare. And then because of the toll, it's going to take on our public resources. Um, you have a right to compel them here. Right. Mm -hmm. But this isn't the same as saying smoking ought to be criminal. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a different claim. I would, I would dispute both of them, but, but that, but that other claim is of a different yeah, kind. Yeah, we're not going to worry about it here because we want to focus on the yeah. criminal justice side. Right, right. So in, uh, as you mentioned, Brad, that a, a person who has, we have, we have a lot of medical information about smoking. Someone smoking, maybe, maybe they're dying of cancer and they take up smoking. In which case the health effect is negligible, mm -hmm. right? Right. But maybe there are cases where they're, uh, they're 10 and they've, you know, they've started smoking in the backyard and the parent really wants to, to intervene or something. And you can, you can say pretty objectively, this is bad for them. But the vehicle by which you should affect that change, obviously a parent can impose all kinds of things for reasons we explored in a recent podcast. Um, uh, but as far as a, a third party, a concerned third party goes, there's lots of things you can do to help this person that do not require force. And if they think this is good for them, those other methods are the solution anyway. You need to persuade them mm -hmm. that it's not and that they can quit and that they can, you know, all these other things. If you don't do that, the force probably won't stop them anyway, unless you're willing to imprison them and keep it away from them. And at that point, you may be doing more harm than good. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the 10-year-old example because obviously, as we've discussed before, children are different than adults and it creates a whole yes. whole different set of variables. Yeah, a parent can impose on them in but ways that even, other even can't. But even in a situation where a 10-year-old decides to pick up smoking, where where the parent does have a lot of leeway over their, over their child that a government doesn't have over its citizen... Mm -hmm doesn't mean that the parent is going to lock them in their room until they turn 18 because they caught them smoking once. I mean, <laughs> yeah. most parents won't, yes. right? You know, most parents who catch their, yeah. their teenager doing something they shouldn't be doing, let's say smoking, they're going to have a conversation. They're, they're probably going to be punishments put in place. You know, your average parent, yeah, there's going to be things. expectations going forward. Mm -hmm. And, and in, and in some degree, there's going to be an element of force theoretically, but in most cases, there's really not. Most of parenting is not force, especially when you're talking about those ages. It's other things, and those other things are what's effective. In fact, you can look at those parents who do try and use force as much as possible, and you'll yeah. see more often than not that it doesn't work and just drives – it drives those kids towards the things that they're forbidden from. You know, I, I, I know the number of – of of kids who are told, hey, you know, I can't have these sweets at home. So anytime I'm not at home, the first thing I do is go for those sweets. I know right. because as that they get was, older, that gets I know more because and more dangerous. Because me as a child, that's what it was for me. You know, it's like, oh, well, we don't have any of this good stuff at home. So I developed a greater appreciation for all things sweet. 
I was really old when I realized that soda was actually not super expensive. <laughs> I, ju I just assumed based on the fact that <laughs> everyone else had soda. and we <laughs> But no, it's true. But, and, and obviously this transitions into much more dangerous substances. But, but, but where, where I was going with that is that parents understand a, another principle that 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 we've found which is that intervention shouldn't be worse for the victim and this is where you get into that self-harm question because so much of the intervention that you can propose is actually worse for the victim than where they were pre-intervention you know smoking has a lot of harm on a person is it worse than life in prison most people would say no to keep them away from it if that's your absolute if that's standard. your absolute standard is that if push comes to shove and they won't quit you know we try everything to stop them our end result is we have to to incarcerate them for the rest of their lives most people would agree that actually getting lung cancer at 60 and then dying is probably better than spending your entire life in prison you know what i mean i think most people would agree with that yeah and, and you you brought up a brilliant point there that should be stated to several times because the people I don't think appreciate it to make something illegal is to say exactly that, that if you refuse to stop, you're going to be in prison forever. Yeah. Like that's the end. That's the end effect of, of all criminal laws that are not uh, observed. Yeah. Right? Which is, the, which the, makes your, sense, which makes sense with, with a lot of, with violent crimes, for example. Yes. You know, you yes, kill someone, must stop, you're going so to, be to, to go mm -hmm. to prison theoretically for life and if it's not for life then if you kill someone again right. you better believe we're sending you back to prison you know if you if you steal and then you steal again you know what i mean each time we're gonna do something about it yes we're not gonna say oh well we acted once and we're done now you know what i mean we slapped you know, like i guess he didn't yeah he yeah. didn't learn his lessons so we give up no no i'm the opposite it's escalating penalties yeah, for exactly. repeat offenses absolutely yeah it's it um which which brings up a a point just worth worth spelling out. Um, so often we we simply conflate government as the organization by which the public comes together to act for the public good and do the things that would be good for people. Yeah, which is just not true. You, there's only so much you can do by force before you start to make things worse, and in certainly in so many areas we've crossed. Well beyond the limit, mm -hmm. and drug laws are a huge example of that, and a number of these other ones as well, where we, where you, uh, where the cure is so much worse than the disease. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so going back to that principle, intervention shouldn't be worse for the victim. This one has a lot of ramifications. You know, drug yeah. laws are definitely one of those because in that case, so many of those drug laws, what you're talking about is self harm. And so the victim yeah. and the suspect are the same person. There's also a lot more areas that are like that, you know, literal self-harm, you know, suicide, you know, cutting all of those things are the same thing where if you just throw them in prison for the rest of their life, are you really helping them? Yes. Um, other, other examples of this, we've already talked about this one before, but domestic abuse and a lot of those issues, intervention shouldn't be worse for the victim, and it needs to be a restraining principle that when you intervene in someone's life, there's going to be a cost, and so it has to be worth it. And so you yes. have to factor that in. You have to remember that and think about it as you're crafting these laws and as you're crafting the laws for how those laws are going to be enforced. It needs to be factored in. Yeah, so in a, I mean, you can take it to extreme examples and say, I mean, smoking, obviously, to throw someone in jail for life because they're smoking obviously doesn't help them, doesn't cure the problem, doesn't, this is obviously a wrong place to, to interpose this. Whereas if someone's going around as a serial killer, you, you stop them if you have to kill them, right? You, you, you stop them at all costs. And as you move, you know, as you narrow the range in there, it gets grayer and grayer, and there's going to be an area at which, at which we're pretty close to the line, but there's going to be there's some disputes. Debate, yeah, there's going to be disputes. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but at this point, in large swaths of the of the law, we have simply accepted the mindset of this is how we help people is through government action and and through criminal law we can help to make people virtuous. Um, 
there's you. <laughs> I don't want to open that bag, <laughs> but, but I, there's only so much you can make happen, right? With a with an adult human being, there's only so much. I mean, with a child, it's true too, but specifically with in the realm of adults is where we're usually focusing. There's only so much you can change about them by the imposition of your will over theirs. Whereas there's lots that they have to uh, willing be willing participant in to change. And, and that brings me to, to one that we actually haven't talked about, Dan, as we were preparing for this episode, but one that I've been trying to, to think of how to, how yeah. to articulate. And it's that one of the core principles needs to be in, and we can argue about the wording, I'm happy to, is that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to protect, so it's, the, it's the, the purpose of the government is to protect the citizens from harm, in particular harm from others, but that the, the, the purpose needs to be to protect them. And, and I mention that because as you're talking about more and more, we're looking at these laws and looking at this justice system, and we're thinking the purpose is to perfect humanity or to help people yeah. improve their lives. And as soon as that becomes the goal, you start running into problems. You know, and that's when you have things like, you know, the no large soda, soda bans in New York City and other <laughs> really silly laws because the, the goal of those laws is not to protect people from crime. You know what I mean? It's not to protect you from violent acts from others. It's not to protect your property from being stolen. It's not to protect someone you from getting killed by someone. The purpose of that law is to help you be a better person. You know, they're like, everyone generally wants to be healthier, but we can't muster the willpower individually. So we'll use the government and its instrument of force in order to force everyone to be better. And that will fix the problem. And on a kind of general level, you can see that, how that would make sense. You know what I mean? Like, I can see that for myself. Like, yeah, I, I have issues with self-control. And so if candy all came in smaller packages or were, or there was a candy tax, so candy cost more, I probably would eat less candy. You know, it probably wouldn't solve it altogether, but it could definitely help. But do I want the government's instrument of force to be the one behind that? I don't think so. And then you get back to the intervention shouldn't be worse for the victim and a lot of these other principles, like the disputed harm, and they all can tie into that idea that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to protect people from these, I mean, really from violent crimes. And I'm using violent more broadly than just, you know, physically hurting you, but I'm using it to include physically hurting you by taking away your property, physically hurting you, by locking you up, you know, all of these, all of the crimes that we're really concerned about fall into that category of violence. Right. And that right. should be the uh, purpose of the criminal justice system is to protect against that. Yeah, the word harm may be odd to some of you to say that it should protect you from harm, but it's, it's what's meant is the same exact idea as uh, to protect your rights. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same concept, yeah. right? It's your rights are tangible ways in which we assess what is what is yours and thus can be harmed from varying from your body to your property to your to other things but yeah it's in case there's any confusion this is it's the same idea harm is kind of the coleman harm is uh just a, a way to state that more concisely i think and to a way to think about it from the other direction and think of rights and from one one way and harm in another So there's a variety of other uh, things here. <laughs> well, well put, Dan. Well put. Believe it or not, As I say everyone, that, I'm checking we have it. not covered all things in relation to this topic. We're close. <laughs> I believe there are three things left, Dan, that have ever been said about this topic. Or, That's or am right. I wrong? Right. Is it actually just the, two? Well, three, and then we'll invent a fourth, and, and then and then the world should have a comprehensive resource for this. <laughs> this episode has everything you need to know about the criminal justice system. Period. Once we cover one those of the things, um, one of the others, and I've I've struggled to state this in a principle, but one one uh, at least one more, I suppose. And Brad, you may have another you want to throw in. Yeah, go. Um, is the idea that uh, that if there is a dispute 
There are varying ways in which we could effectively address the dispute, depending on the willingness of the victims. Right now, we have one system for this. Uh, the, the only system. Yeah, the court really. system. The court system, as we know it, functions in a particular way. You have, um, and a lot of it is very good. You have an adversarial system uh, in which the two parties try to come to the truth. And a, and in cases where it's important, like criminal cases, um, you have a jury of your peers to help navigate that and decide, you know, uh, the, the truth of it, right? Decide, figure out what happened. Um, all of this is very good. I don't want to, I don't want to, that should not be thrown away by any means. But occasionally what you have is you have, uh, you don't need that same level of adversarial opposition because what happened isn't really in dispute. And the parties, rather than having an, uh, a system that deals with, uh, what's the word? The acts in opposition to the offender, right? To the, to the guilty party mm -hmm. and sentences them from on high. What you could do is you could actually work with the offender to find a solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. And this makes a lot more sense if you're, if you're thinking of it in the absence of government. Because in government, we have this one thing and this is, this is what we do with people. But if you have a problem, uh, between, uh, two children, we, we can see this a lot better. There's times where your kid takes the toy from another kid and it's his, it's the other kid's toy. And your kid is not going to give it back, right? And you, you act like our court systems. You're the, you're the jury. You're the judge. You're the arbitrator. And you go, give me that. And you give it back to the person and your kid goes away crying, right? There are other times where your kid feels guilty and where your kid realizes they've done something wrong. They really wanted this toy. But at that point, it can be a fundamentally different experience mm -hmm. because your kid can be a participant in writing the wrong. And uh, we, we've explored this at length in our episode of, uh, on restorative justice, the word restore, the term restorative justice, uh, used to refer to this kind of thing. In some ways it's being co-opted for, for other things at this point, but in cases where both the, if the person who has been harmed and the person who did the harming are willing, you can address and go through this process in an entirely collaborative way. The two parties, instead of being set apart, never communicating, come together. They figure out, they discuss what the problem was. They talk about their experience. They then establish a solution that's acceptable to both of them. And they solve the problem. Um, a great, a great example of how this can be effective, because to clarify restorative justice, because when people talk about restorative justice, it kind of just sounds like therapy. <laughs> and and that's where and that's where I think we kind of miss the mark because typically when we're talking about restorative justice, we are talking about situations where there is harm that may not be fully disputed, but there's usually some dispute. There's harm yeah, that yeah, happened yeah. Yeah. that requires intervention. And so mm -hmm. so the government does need to intervene and does need to find a solution to this, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in the court system. Um I think an area where this could be incredibly effective is is going back to the domestic abuse where you don't want the intervention to be worse for the victim than the yeah. actual crime but you do need to intervene because because we don't want to, to look at domestic abuse and say hey we're just going to be hands off because that's 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 a because it's a huge problem that needs to be addressed but how the court system is set up right now is crap for domestic abuse you know what i mean because they have these these rigid requirements set in place that funnels you towards a few outcomes you know you can you can separate them and you can throw one in prison and those are basically your only options you know what i mean you've got the restraining order and you've got prison time you know what i mean and that's just not it's not enough it's not nuanced and flexible enough to deal with something as complicated as 
as violence inside of an intimate relationship because that's not simple and it doesn't have one word answers. And so being able to have a restorative justice system where you have a government representative who does have some of the power that a judge has Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. limits and you have both parties who even though one is a guilty party and one is a victim are willing to come together and have honest conversations and have and and meet in a unique situation and meet in a way that's different than a courtroom that allows people to come up with alternative solutions that can potentially benefit everyone you open the door to possibilities to solutions that were never looked at before yes and simply can't be had without this kind that of can't be had in a willingness yeah 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 it's interesting because I, and i guess if i were to state the principle came to me as you were talking it's this you need to have you need to at least have justice but you could have more if the parties are willing to reach for more mm-hmm. right you could have a kind of restoration and uh relationship with some kind of <laughs> healing for lack of a better word some kind of some kind of uh redemption story here in which the person goes through a process that satisfy, satisfies the person who has been harmed that has been negotiated between them that saw, that addresses the problems and restores this person fully to society in a way that a in a way that a penal justice system can yeah and that goes back to well what is the purpose of the justice system the justice system the purpose is to protect us the citizens from violence and so as long as you're able to do that as long as you're able to make sure that when you're looking at restorative justice you see that there's this violence that has occurred and what can you do to protect against that violence in the future? And and you need to make sure that you're still considering that. And that's where I think some modern versions of restorative justice fall flat as it becomes, okay, well, let's just fix the guilty party. You know what I mean? And that's not what we're saying yeah. here. It's more no. than that. And it's very different than that. No, what we're talking about, I keep emphasizing that it's a willing process on on both parties for it to work because... Uh, generally, w- the way the term has been co-opted today is restorative justice is, is the term for a new idea of justice in which we accept the materialist claim that you are entirely a product of your environment. And so just trying... And so yeah. you don't... Yeah, you don't really deserve punishment. It's just how you've been shaped. And so we're going to take you, like clay, and shape you into something better. Right? This is This is entirely... This is fundamentally different in how it views the 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 participation of the of the people involved mm-hmm. right um it can also be restorative justice can also be a gateway into restoration in the sense of social justice you know and, and so it's a that's a bummer that the term by the time i discovered the term a few years later it was being destroyed mm-hmm. but <laughs> didn't take very long get excited about some nice new word and shiny new word and here it is ruined by politics like most things there could be other conversations we can have on this along these same lines about things like regulations, which are obviously something different, right? It's not no crime per se has been committed, but there has been some standard that's been failed to keep and it hasn't been met. And as such, people are, uh, there's some kind of punishment affixed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we could talk about, about uh, you know, business law where there are real crimes being committed, but because the corporation is the entity that you're dealing with, you there's no punishment. Given yeah, at all. yeah. The way that LLCs and and how company designations work actually protect these companies from criminal liability in a way that is completely unjust. And yeah, that where you're getting fines when you should be getting jail. Well, yeah, time. exactly. When people should actually be 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 punished, be stopped yeah. from be stopped from committing that act again because once again the goal is to protect against that violence and violence is being committed by individuals you know corporations are not real beings that are independent from humanity and separating them in the that corrupt way corporation. yeah exactly doesn't work which is why shell companies are such a joke you know that oh well the shell company 
made that drug. And so that drug's bad. Okay, well, that shell company went bankrupt. Great. Well, <laughs> we just erase that on the paper. Yeah, even <laughs> though the company that actually did it and the people who actually did it are continuing to do whatever they were doing. You know, can you imagine yeah. that same argument being made for serial killers? It's like, oh, well, I created a, an identity. <laughs> His name was Killer Jones, and he killed those people. But Killer Jones, yeah, he's spending the rest of his life in, in prison. But me, Sam Jones, yeah, I'm going to walk free. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That makes no yeah. sense. No, corporate, the corporate shell game and the shield that it is for liability and things is, it was, was a, a massive twist from, uh, from the common law heritage that we have and from what were legit legal principles mm-hmm. that were, it was mm-hmm. based on. And, and we, and and it was an effort to steer society, right? They were like, we we actually want businesses of this kind, so we're going to give them special permissions to be corporations. This was before it was common, right? It was a special privilege initially, mm-hmm. and then it just became the norm. But uh, anyway, yes, uh, the business law, the the uh, regulatory sphere in which you're mitigating risk and things like yeah, that. yeah, risk laws, things like traffic laws or or gun laws, those are controversial, but definitely, definitely worth addressing because it gets back into that harm and risk and all of that, which is, which is a discussion worth having maybe at another time because gun laws and traffic laws could each probably handle an episode. Yeah. For now I'll settle for, you know, getting of the 2.3 million, say a million of them <laughs> out of prison and away from criminal charges that, uh, that they don't deserve because it's some kind of self-harm. Yeah, and not a million out a million getting released out of prison because we need to fix the numbers, but a million getting released from prison yeah. because about a million of them are there unjustly and should never be there in the first place. And that's why they need to be released. Yes. And some of it is, is, uh, some of it is, uh, downstream of the of the of the laws that need to change mm-hmm. drugs being example number one there and that the violence happens downstream of the illegality yeah. of the drugs which means there's a you can change the number of violent crimes which we do want prosecuted mm-hmm. but you can reduce that simply by changing the legality of drugs yeah, and but other a things. decent number could be are cl- clear cut enough that we're talking commuted sentences Commuted that sentences. there are that's a right. good number of people in prison currently who could just yeah be at least half a million who you could just uh, release if you change the laws so that uh, yeah so that the system as it is doesn't doesn't function quite the way it does. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.